The book of Revelation is known for many things. Its mysterious symbols, its grotesque imagery, its bizarre cast of characters. A dragon, a beast, locust warriors, a woman clothed with the sun. When I was writing my commentary on Revelation, those locust warriors gave me nightmares. Revelation's also known for its dark and dualistic view of a rebellious world standing under the judgment of God. Especially in our time, it has become known for its supposed atmosphere of violence, no doubt reflecting the repressed resentment felt by a minority group that would like to see the dominant society be cast into the lake of fire. If ever there was a biblical book that fit Jonathan Edwards' description, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, this would seem to be it. The apocalypse is undoubtedly dualistic in its way, God versus the world, Saint Michael versus Satan, the apocalyptic army of the 144,000 sealed versus the beast whose number is 666. In a world suspicious of dualisms of all sorts, the apocalypse doesn't come off looking very good. It is typical sectarian literature, and we, meaning especially perhaps we Anglicans, all know that sectarianism is a bad thing. But I have not come here this morning to bury the apocalypse, but to praise it, or rather to commend the apocalypse for its praise of the Lord God of Israel, whom we Christians worship as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before the Apocalypse is a book of judgment and vengeance, it is a radically theocentric book, and precisely because it is theocentric, it is also liturgical and musical. It's really amazing to see just how much worship there is in the Apocalypse. Besides our passage read this morning, there's the Song of the Great Multitude in chapter 7, the new song sung by the Lamb's army in chapter 14, and the Song of Moses and the Lamb in chapter 15, and of course, Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth in chapter 19, from which Handel drew his famous Hallelujah Chorus in, appropriately, the Oratorio Messiah. If you do not understand the music of the Apocalypse, you will not understand its peculiar and powerful witness. Our concern this morning is with the first real liturgical bit in chapter 4 and then in the passage we read this morning from chapter 5. Chapter 4 opens with John being lifted up to heaven to behold the heavenly worship, the four living creatures and the 24 elders forever singing before the throne of the Lord God Almighty. That worship begins with the sanctus, the seraphic cry of holy, 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 which Judy Paulson has already ably exposited in this preaching series. It continues with the ascription of praise to God for his astonishing action as the creator. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The church and the synagogue share this conviction that nothing that is has to be. You and I are here this morning only because God has willed us into being. It is an astonishing thought. 
And yet John's vision of heaven and of heavenly worship is not finished. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Anton Chekhov famously said that if a gun appears in act one of a play, it has to go off before the end of act five. The scroll is firmly sealed. It must be opened. But here's the thing, John's angel declares that the seal cannot be opened except by one who is worthy. And on hearing this, John weeps loudly, for there is no one on heaven or on earth or under the earth who can open the scroll. You can read this passage many ways, but here's my take on it. The contents of the scroll are God's providential rule of history the means by which he will bring creation to fulfillment and make things come out right in the end. But the scroll is sealed. There is no creature who can open it. And so the world remains a dark and puzzling place. If I had to assign a theological name to it, I'd say the scroll sums up the whole question of theodicy, the question whether the God who is justice itself is actually just, just in a way that matters for creatures like ourselves. And that is why John weeps. There is nothing more human than weeping. As David wept over Absalom and as the psalmist wept through the night and as Jesus wept over Jerusalem and as Mary wept in the garden, so John weeps. The NRSV says he wept bitterly, but that's pretty interpretive. The Greek just says ekleion polu, he wept a lot. No doubt he did. There is a lot to weep for. This is not the place to offer a Christian reading of our political situation in this year of our Lord 2016, but I will say this one thing. Between Brexit and Trump's victory and the horrors of Syria and the Euro European refugee crisis and God knows what else, any idea that we have arrived at a bright new day of justice, peace, and global security has been exposed as naive. History goes on. And while it does, there will be plenty of room for tears. But in our passage, this note of lament is touched on only briefly. The main thrust is affirmative. We might say evangelical. For it turns out that there is one worthy to open the scroll, one who not only knows God's providential rule, but is the very agent of that rule. Thus, the angel announces that the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. Therefore, he is worthy to open the scroll with its seven seals. The Lion of Judah, who, in a surprising twist, turns out to be a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb slaughtered and strangely alive. And not just a lamb slaughtered, but one endowed with seven horns and seven eyes, symbol of his messianic power and infinite knowledge, a lamb filled with the Lord's own spirit. This lamb, of course, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just the clue to our history. He is our history. He is the divine human life that God is, whether we like it or not, drawing us into. 
A lot of the imagery in Revelation is harsh, yes, and it surely stands in need of careful interpretation. But, but if it is harsh, it is because we humans do not easily yield control of our lives or our world. As I said to my students in systematics just this past Monday, the wrath of God is but the love of God turned against the violence and falsehood of this world. God is against us only because he is for us, truly against us in our sin and truly for us as he has taken up our cause in the person of his son, the lion lamb who has won the victory on our behalf. Our greatest fear, I think, is that God intends to bludgeon us into submission in the end. God wins, therefore creatures must lose. But this is not the Lord's way, his economy, or his grace. No, what the Lord wants to do is sing us into submission. As soon as the Lamb takes the scroll from the hands of the Almighty, before he can even open it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before him and sing a new song. It is a song of victory, praising the crucified for his ransoming a people out of every tribe and language and nation of the earth. Wow, we say, how amazing. God has called into being this incredible community, this perfect people, this invisible church. If only there really were a people like this a people who know when to weep and when to sing, a people who know not just what to sing, but who to sing to, a people who live by the praise of the Lord God Almighty, a people who sing to the Lamb, a people whose tongues are loosed by the Holy Spirit of God. If only we could find such a people, we would be sure to join up in a minute. Too late, though, we are already that people. We, the visible and all too imperfect church. The elder's song and the living creature's song and the angel's song is our song. The first time you stepped into a church and opened your mouth to sing, it was your song. From your mother's womb, it was your song, the very music of your birth and baptism. You. Christian sisters and brothers were summoned into existence in this time and place to sing this song. And once this song begins, there is no end of it. By the time Revelation 5 is over, it is not just angels and elders and prophets and you and me who are singing, but every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The church from all nations surrounded by a vast cosmic chorus of praise. Question, what is the relation between music and mission? Answer, there is no relation, for they are the same thing when the music is this music, and the one to whom we sing it, the Lord God Almighty. To sing is to be sent. This is what is called missional ecclesiology. Worthy is the lamb who was slain 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The church is that people who have been given the freedom to sing this song, who cannot not sing it. So sing, Christian. Sing your heart out. Sing in the night of tears and in the day of rejoicing. Don't worry if you can't carry a tune. The tune will carry you. And as you sing, you will find yourself in the company of saints and angels and elders and cosmic beings, and not least, your fellow Christians. Let us sing as the church and live as the church and be thankful. Amen.